Heading back to your seats. If anyone uh, was not here last week, so you wouldn't have a sermon insert covered last week as well as this week, uh, you could raise your hand and we can get someone to hand them out. Sue, could you help with that, please? I see a couple hands back there. Anyone that needs a sermon insert, you raise your hand and Sue will get you one of those. Do want to say how good it is to see Margaret uh, with us this morning. Uh, we've been praying for her for weeks and weeks, and uh, and Heather's here too, and just rejoicing. So good to have you here. Rejoice. As I was talking to her on the phone yesterday, just everything that was coming out of her mouth was just causing me to rejoice in the Lord. So, you know, praise the Lord. And uh, others that have been traveling, and it's good to see Kirsten here this morning, recovered from her surgery well enough to be here as well. So, uh as long as we live in this uh, present age, we're going to face those things, aren't we? Sufferings of this present time. Not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. We've uh, addressed that in chapter 8. Okay, well, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you now, and we pray that you would be our teacher. Holy Spirit, will you take off the, the, the page or the digital device, however we're looking at the scripture together this morning, we take it off of the page and and put it into our hearts, into our minds, and plant it into our souls so that it might bear fruit for your glory. And and Father, I recognize, uh, I think most of us do, that we're in a section in the book of Romans that is a little challenging for people. Pray that our hearts be receptive to the truth. We not that we would not resist or rebel against it, but that we would give you glory through it. So thank you. Have your own way. We pray this in Christ's great name. Amen. So, yeah, we're in this great book, letter really, that Paul wrote to the, the Church of Rome um, so long ago, but it still is just as applicable for us today. And uh, it, it is his detailed explanation of the gospel, isn't it? The gospel which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. And the reason it's the power of God to, to save is because it reveals how to have a right relationship with God. And, and someone might ask, well, it's like, doesn't everyone have a relationship with God? And no. No, in fact, people enter this world separated from God, enemies of God. And uh, and, and that is why we need the righteousness of God. That's how we get a right relationship with God. We, we stand as condemned sinners when we enter this world. We, we're born sinners, and then we, we practically become sinners day by day from the moment of our birth. And, and therefore, we are condemned by God for our sin. You say, well, yeah, but how many sins does it take to be condemned? This one, this is, James put it well, he says, if you, you obey the whole law and, and fail in one point, you're guilty of it all. And of course, you know, the sin of unbelief, I mean, that is the ultimate one sin that keeps us out of relationship with God. So we are condemned as sinners. But A, God does not, uh, you know, leave everyone there. In fact, he says, you can be right with me. And, and you can by believing in my son, who was a sacrifice for sins, we've remembered that this morning. That through his blood, 
being shed, that God's wrath towards sinners could be propitiated, could be satisfied. And so faith in Christ's sacrifice is death, burial, and resurrection is how we get right with God. And, and Paul put it in, in chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. No longer enemies, no longer separated. We're in a relationship with God. And we are his sons and daughters and we are members of his family through justification by faith. And oh, what a difference that makes in our lives. You know, the, the, one of the big differences is that, is that we're no longer dead in sin. We're dead to sin. We're no longer dead under its penalty and power, d- dominated by it. No, no, we are dead to sin and its domination in our life. We're alive in Christ. And we're dead to the law, both to its penalty and its power. It no longer condemns us. Now, we still deserve its condemnation, but Christ bore the condemnation for us. So we're dead to that condemnation, and we're dead to the, the shame and the guilt that it, the law brings to those that are trying to keep it but failing. You know, it's, it just heaps guilt and shame on them, and to live that way is certainly not living in a right relationship with God. And so the big difference is that what the law couldn't do, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. That was Romans 8, verses 1 through 3. He talks about that. God sent his own son. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. We we remember that as incarnation. We were singing about it this morning. He came and he lived a perfect sin, sinless life so that he might be able to take our sin upon himself and he could then impute his righteousness to us. And so it's not, you know, that we now, through faith, can in our own strength keep the righteous requirements of the law. No, that's never going to be possible. But the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 tells us, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and the law of the Spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death. And then we are able, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, to practically live out that right relationship with God. Praise Him. Praise Him. It's His work in us. And, And the Spirit then is constantly leading us as children of God. And He's speaking to us, saying, hey... You're members of God's family. You've been adopted into God's family by grace. And yes, in this world, you're going to have a lot of trouble. Greg was sharing that with us earlier. In this world, we have trouble. No peace. Not peace. We have peace with God, but not in the world. A lot of suffering. But the suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. So we keep a future forward look, right? That's what Paul is saying. And as, as, we, as we do that, we are reminded of God's sovereign plan of salvation that he chose us, that he predestined us, that he called us, that he justified us. And in God's, in God's mind, we're already glorified. It's such a sure deal. And nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. 
Now, all of that is Paul's explanation of the gospel. And then he gets to chapter 9, and a switch gets flipped, and he's still addressing the gospel, but he's addressing it from the Jewish-Gentile question. You know, scattered throughout the letter to this point is the clear impression that um, the Jews didn't receive Christ. They were not in a right relationship with Christ. That doesn't mean every Jew. It meant the bulk of the nation. They rejected him. As we were singing this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the focus is on Israel awaiting the Savior. And the Savior came, and they rejected him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Praise him. So this, this question arises in the, in the Jewish readers of this letter, Jewish members of the church in Rome, Jewish people in general. It's like, Paul, it sounds like you're really just saying Israel's out. Gentiles are in. And Paul wants to make it clear that is not the case. God's not done with Israel yet. And so in chapters 9 through 11, he is addressing that big subject and brings us into the, the deep, dark forest of Samar doctrines, like divine, sovereign election. And why a, a group of people are you know, going to go to hell and... A small group of people are going to go to heaven. How does, how does divine sovereign election relate to human responsibility to believe? And are, are the Gentiles really all that much now better than the Jews? Uh, he's going to address all of, all, all of those things. And we started last week looking in verses 1 through 5 about Paul's desire to communicate to the Jewish readers in particular that he was not their enemy. Many people, many people of the Jewish faith thought that he was. And, and they thought that, you know, he just kind of abandoned the Jews. And he said, no, no, no. My heart is for them. I'm their kinsman according to the flesh. I'm a blood brother with them. I long for them to come to know Christ. It was a very sad story for him and he, he says that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart and that he would even be willing, if it were possible, wasn't, but he'd be willing to separate himself from Christ for the sake of his kinsmen. And then he expressed why he was so sad, be, be, because they had such great privileges as a nation. And that's what he said in verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites they're covenant people, in other words. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the kind of glory that was part of the Old Testament story that led Israel in the wilderness and inhabited the, the tabernacle and later the temple. They had the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the uh, covenant with uh, Isaac and and Jacob. and 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 then they had the... The, the Mosaic Covenant, and they had the Davidic Covenant with God's promise that one of David's sons would sit on the throne of Israel forever. They had the giving of the law, 
What a blessing. They were the only nation that had received, I wouldn't say a document, because it was on stone, wasn't it? God's written law on stone, and then later expanded by Moses in documents. They had that blessing, that privilege. Other nations did not. They had the the worship, which meant the temple worship, the all the detail that went into the beauty of these sacrifices representing the sacrifice. All pictured the sacrifice of the Savior on our behalf. They had that. They had the promises that God had given, the promises of of all the covenants, and particularly the promises of a Messiah who would come. And to them belonged the patriarchs, and, and, and from their race, the ultimate privilege was that the Christ would come, the Messiah would come, the Savior of the world would come. What great privileges. And yet, they were, as a nation, lost. They had rejected God, God's Son. And so, it is equally true, God rejects those who rejects His Son. Those who do not believe in His Son will not receive the gift of eternal life. But Paul knows that he needs to go on from there. And so he he moves from his expression of sorrow to develop his argument vindicating God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Because, you know, the, the Jews would be thinking, well, that's not right. That's not, that's not fair what God has done. He's, he's, you're saying that he's abandoned us. But Paul is going to show that God is no petty deity unable to affect his purposes and plans, but he's a mighty God who's doing whatever he wants to do and doing it all. And the next step in his argument is to show that God's dealings or working with the nation of Israel was always, always, always based upon his sovereign choice and not on the principle of natural generation or meritorious works. So let's read our text for today, Romans 9, 6 through 14, and then we'll go on and kind of break it apart and seek to understand it. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring uh, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the first thing that Paul does here is he destroys the idea that every uh, Israelite would be saved, which was a, a view commonly held by the by the Jews. The the Jews would contend uh, that Israel had all those privileges that Paul had mentioned in verses four and five, and that they were the chosen people. 
but that the present teaching of Paul would surely imply that God was unable to fulfill what he had promised them as a nation. And to this Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, he is anticipating their argument, the Jewish straw man objector, if you will. It's like, Paul, it sounds like you're saying that God is unable to fulfill his word to Israel. And Paul says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. God's word or his promise to Israel has not failed because those for whom the promise or the word was intended were not merely the physical descendants of Abraham. In the rest of the paragraph, Paul identifies several factors regarding the nature of salvation and election, how it relates to this Jewish question. But really, the big question is, has the word of God fell? And Paul's saying, absolutely not. Now, when we get to verse 18, we're going to, or 19, we're going to, another question is going to come up. Is God unfair? Is God unfair? But here he's, he's dealing with this question uh, of whether the word of God has failed. Is God unable to fulfill his promises? So the first thing that we need to see in this list that Paul uh, gives of the things regarding salvation and election is that salvation is not determined by physical birth. So if you're filling in your insert there, salvation is not determined by physical birth. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It's kind of interesting there because Israel is another was the name that God gave to Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham, right? So not all who came from Jacob are true Israel or true sons of Jacob in that sense. Why he puts the grandson first, I'm not quite sure. But then he brings in Abram. Not all the physical descendants of Abraham would be considered his true, uh, you know, children. Now, the Jews had it in their thinking that uh, being a physical descendant of Abraham guaranteed a right relationship with God. Now, we can see this attitude played out in the Gospel of John in chapter 8. So turn, if you will, in your Bible to John chapter 8. Just take a quick look at it. It is a a conversation, a dispute that the Lord Jesus is having with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And he has told uh, the people that if they would abide in his word, they would be his disciples, and they would know the truth, and the truth would set them free. Verse 31. Well, the religious leaders, who of course have rejected Jesus, answered Jesus, saying in verse 32, We are Abraham's offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Which is a very weird statement because it wasn't truthful in the first place. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And they were enslaved many times over during the period of the judges by foreign nations. And they were sent into exile, conquered and enslaved by Assyria, and then later Babylon is like, don't they know their history? Well, you know, throw the facts out. We're just arguing with Jesus, uh, you know. 
And so they say, we're okay. We're okay. We're free because we're Abraham's offspring. And then they, then they say, um, I know that you, if Jesus says to them, I, I know that you are uh, Abraham's offspring, yet you still seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not, uh, you, do, you do what you have heard from your father. It's like, you get it? He's making a little dig there. I've heard from my father, clearly reference to God the Father, and you, you, you're doing what your father does. Your father. Different father. And he goes on in verse 39. They answered him. They, they got the dig. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, well, if you were Abraham's, I'm going to put the word true in there, Abraham's true children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father that your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So you get their dig. It's like, we know where we're from. You, we know the story about you that you, you, you don't even know who your father truly was. You know, yeah, Mary may be a child of Abraham, but, Abraham, but you can't be even sure about who your father was. So they're trying to, you know, uh, throw it back in his face. And Jesus says in verse 42, if, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So, you get it? The Jews, that represents the common Jewish view. It's like, we're Abraham's physical descendants, so we are children of God. We're right with God. And Jesus makes it very clear. That physical descent from Abraham doesn't make one right with God. Doesn't make them a child of God. So, the word of God has not failed, you see, because those for whom the promise or the word was given was never, uh, never determined by physical birth, natural generation. If, if physical descendant, descendancy from Abraham was uh, all that mattered, then the descendants of Ishmael and Abraham's second wife, Keturah, which is mentioned in Genesis 25, 1 through 4, several children came from Abraham's uh, marriage to Keturah. They would all be considered children of Abraham, true children, if that, if all that mattered was physical descent from Abraham. But Jesus, you know, he made it clear it's not that. Um, and and, and no, none of the Jews would have thought, yeah, yeah, I mean, the children of Abraham, uh, you know, uh, including Ishmael and his descendants and 
uh, Esau and his, his descendants and Keturah and her descendants, all, they'd all be included in the same group. N- they would never agree with that. The Old Testament makes it clear as well that they were not viewed that way by God. In fact, God is the one who says they are different. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless Ishmael and, the, and 12 tribes will come from him. You know, there'll it, be great nations. And uh, Edom, Esau, a, a nation will come from him. Edom will come from him. It'll be a great nation. Um, but they're not part of the true children of God, the true children of Israel or of Abraham. So let me apply this just for a moment. Uh, the point that we have to take away from this is that salvation or being right with God is not determined by natural birth, right? Physical birth. And, and you might think, well, who would think that way? Well, I don't know, almost the entire swath of the southern states of the United States, known as the Bible Belt. In churches, they grow up thinking, well, my parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians. Uh, you know, I can trace back my you know, Christian heritage all the way to, you know, the Mayflower. Of course I'm a Christian. I go to church. Of course I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Of course I'm a Christian. I own a Bible. I may not read it, but I, I, I have it. And it's like, I've got all these privileges. That, that makes me right with God, right? No. No, because natural birth, having Christian parents... Is never the, the determination of whether you are a true child of God. Salvation, Paul is saying, is determined by divine sovereign choice, not natural or physical birth. We must understand that. And we must make that clear as we share the gospel with people. You see, while this is a tough section, perhaps, of, of the book of Romans, it has so much practical implications for us and how we would share the truth of the gospel with lost people. The second thing that Paul identifies is that salvation is according to promise. That's verses 7 through 9. So he makes a distinction, Paul does, between those who are children of Abraham and those who are Abraham's offspring. Did you pick that up in, in what we read there? That uh, not all who are descendants of Abraham are true children of God. So uh, in, in, in the case of, of what we've read, the former referred to those who are true children of Abraham or true Israel. And the latter referred to those who are merely physical descendants. But then Paul quotes from Genesis 21 verse 12 saying this. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. So his point is very clear that, and every Jew would have to agree that more than physical descent, right? More than mere physical descent was involved. Or again, they would be admitting that Ishmael and his descendants and the children of Abraham through his second wife Keturah and Esau and his descendants, that they would all be the same as them. And that is something, again, that they would never accept. And so the proposition has been made by Paul that natural birth doesn't determine whether you are a true child of God. And then he goes on to show that salvation is according to God's promise. Not natural birth, 
not natural generation, but God's promise. He says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, if you've never read the Old Testament, what what Paul is doing here may be lost on you, and I encourage you to read it, at least the book of Genesis. You get so much important detail. But this has taken us back to Genesis chapters 15 through 18. Now, God established his initial dialogue and promised it to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to make you a, a, you know, a blessing. Everyone that blesses you, I will bless. And I'll make you and and into a nation, and it will be a blessing to all nations. That the promise of a, a, a child wasn't there. But when you get to chapter 15, God had made a promise to Abram that he would have a child. And then, then we read in Genesis 16 that some doubt began to creep in on the part of Abram and Sarai. And, and Sarai came up with this brilliant plan, right? Abram, I'm not going to give you a, 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 a child, so take Hagar, my handmaid, my slave, and have a child with her, and that would be the, the child. And he does. He follows her directions, and uh, Ishmael is born. And and then we come to chapter 17, and the Lord returns, and he, he tells and he renames Abram and Sarah. He says, Abram, you're no longer Abram. You're going to be Abraham because I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Sarai will no longer be Sarah. She'll be, you know, Sarai, but Sarah because she'll be a princess. And just beautiful renaming them with the, the difference in the, na- the meaning of their names. Quite beautiful. But in 17, uh, God says, Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a child. It's not Ishmael. That wasn't the promise. I'm going to give you and Sarah a child together. And in in the middle of that chapter, in verse 17, we read this. That Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He's like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, Ishmael is now probably 12 years old, something like that, when, when this happens. And Abraham thought it was all a done deal with Ishmael, you know. And it's like, no, no, Ishmael isn't the one. And so we come to chapter 18. The Lord again appears to Abraham and reaffirms his promise to Abraham and Sarah. Now, Sarah's in the tent listening to the dialogue. And as soon as, as the Lord says that to Abraham, she laughs. Now, don't put blame on Sarah, because Abraham was the one who laughed first, right? And Sarah's just, you know, doing it. Abraham says, yeah, right. This is not possible. And I think we have to see the beauty of what God is doing in that text and how it relates to where we're at in Romans chapter 9. He's purposely waiting until Abraham and Sarah were beyond the age of bearing children. He was waiting until they were, I don't know, old geezers, right? 
He, he didn't have the seed to produce and she didn't have the womb that could receive that and, and bear a child. So from a natural perspective, they were beyond the age of childbearing. But why did God do it this way? Well, it's clear, isn't it? So that, that it would be understood. This child was a child of promise. Miraculous promise of God had to uh, take place. Natural lineage was not the critical issue. The promise of God was most important. So the true children, Paul's saying, came through the line of promise. Isaac was born as a result of the promise of God to Abraham and Sarah. And, and the, the children of promise needed to come from Isaac's line, not Ishmael's line. I mean, God was going to bless Ishmael and his descendants, but the promise to Abraham about the land and all the blessing and so on and so forth, it all had to come through Isaac's line. But the Jewish antagonists might, you know, argue, well, yeah, but Ishmael, he was, he was, an Ill, he was illegitimate because he was born of a slave woman. And, and not, you know, Abraham's wife, Sarah. Wouldn't that prove the Jews' point? After all, they were physical descendants of Abraham through the line of Isaac and not Ishmael. So Paul's going to take up his next point in a moment to prove that the word of God has not failed regarding God's promise to Israel. But before we look at that, let's, let's think of applying this as well. So if you are a saved person, you're one who has been justified by faith in Christ. You've been born again. You need to understand that your salvation is also according to God's promise. It doesn't come from natural lineage. It has nothing to do with your parents being Christian. Likewise, your security in Christ is not based on your promise to God that you will live in a way that, you know, brings him glory, that you'll live according to the law. No, our promises to God are usually broken, aren't they? But God's promises to us are never broken. God promises and he keeps his promises. Why? Because of who he is. Who he is. Think of these verses. Do you have these verses like numbers and so on? Yeah, okay, so it'll be on the screen for you. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that, you know, he, he should uh, change his mind, repent. No, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Those are rhetorical questions. Of course, if he speaks it, he'll do it. If he promises it, he'll carry it out. Then, we jump to the New Testament, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, important, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, I think many of the translations say, who cannot lie, promised before the ages began, before God created anything. He had already made this promise. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 18, so powerful. For when God made a promise to Abraham, so we know we're talking about the same issue, right? 
promise to Abraham. When he made the promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, it's like you've got to almost chuckle at that when you read the Genesis account, but he did wait. He had no other choice, but he did wait. He obtained the promise. For people swear by some, something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. God keeps his promises. And he did to Israel as well as to us and to the church. So we should give thanks that we are saved because God keeps his promises. Next, the next point that Paul is making in his argument is that salvation is not determined by behavior. Verses 10 and 11. Not only so, he says, but also when Rebekah was conceived, uh, Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So he's making it clear, he's already made it clear that a right relationship with God is not determined by natural generation, but by promise. Now he's saying that it's not de- determined by natural generation or meritorious works. It's not determined by behavior. So in, in verse 6 he had said there was a di- distinction made in the, the uh, offspring of Israel, right? Not all who are born of Israel are true Israel. And then he made the distinction, verse 7, of, of Abraham's descendants. Not all who were a physical descendant of Abraham were true children of God either. So, uh, you know, a case could be made for the choice of Isaac and not Ishmael because of who their mothers were. One was a slave and the other was Abraham's wife. But when you come to Jacob and Esau, they had the same father and mother, and they were born of the same pregnancy, right? Same pregnancy. They were twins. Uh, the only real distinction between them was that Esau was born first and then Jacob. And because Esau was born first, it would make more sense, according to the culture, that he would have been the child of promise. But no, Jacob was the child of promise, not Esau. Do you get what God's doing, by the way? You take Abraham. Let's start with Abraham. How many of his descendants were, you know, real children of God? Well, certainly not more than 50%. Less if you consider the other children uh, of Abraham through his wife Keturah. So 50% are of Abraham's descendants are out of the picture, right? And then we come to Isaac and Rebekah, and they have two sons. And only one of them is chosen, the other is not. So that really brings us down to 25%. Get the numbers? 
is getting narrowed, isn't it, of those who are the true children of God. It could hardly be clearer, I think, that a person's behavior doesn't determine salvation by what Paul writes here. And there are three statements that stand out. One, they were not yet born. (laughs) Yeah, I really, I'm so appreciative of all your good deeds. Oh, no, wait, you don't have any because you don't even exist. No good deeds, you're not yet born. Secondly, they had done nothing, either good or bad. Well, of course, they couldn't have done anything good or bad because they weren't yet born. But even after they were born, it wasn't determined by anything good or bad which they had done. And then the third statement is, it was not because of works. And we get at the end of that, you know, they were uh, in verse Mm, 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls. So, this wipes away any idea that salvation is determined by what you do or don't do, right? It's not determined by what you do or don't do. It's like, this, this will crack you up. It cracked me up so I thought I'd share it. The guy didn't write it as a joke. One author wrote this regarding what Paul writes here. He said, uh, It is not said that God didn't know who would do the good and who would do the bad. So, you know, his argument is like, Well, God looked down the corridors of time and he saw, he knew, you know, who would do good and who would do bad. Isn't that kind of missing the whole point that Paul's making? Right? It, it's not determined by any person doing good or bad. It's not according to works. It's not determined by behavior. God did know. Yes, he did know who would do what. And what they would believe and what they wouldn't believe. But it had nothing to do with God's choice of them. That's what Paul's saying their behavior didn't determine God's choice of them. You've got that backwards. God's choice of them determines their behavior. Not the reverse. So salvation is not determined by behavior, and certainly we have to apply that as well. I mean, this is one of the false beliefs that is most prolific and most difficult for for people to abandon. And I think that's true for unbelieving people as well as for believing people. This is just hard for people to accept that salvation or having a good relationship with God isn't determined by what I do or what I don't do. I mean, built within us is this bent for believing that if we're good enough, if we're religious enough, if we work hard enough, if we are engaged in good works enough, then we will be right with God. All we have to do is do more than others. All we have to be is just, you know, be better than others. And this is the false belief that salvation or being justified, being declared right with God is, de- is based on and dependent upon our behavior. Throw that belief away, would you? Just do what you should do with it. Pick it up. Walk over to the trash can. Throw it in the trash can. Take it out to the street so the, the dump truck can come and pick it up and you'll never see it again. 
That's where that belief needs to go. It's from the devil. It's from the devil. Do not believe that. Salvation is not determined by behavior. And as believers, we have to avoid that as well. We talked about it in Romans 7 in particular. This, this strange, wrong view that, well, I know that I'm saved by faith, but to have a good relationship with God, I've got to do right. I've got to keep doing right. And, and Paul addresses it there and says, no, all that will bring you is guilt and shame. And he deals with it in detail in Galatians chat, in the book of Galatians as well. If you're going to take that position, then you've already fallen from grace. So as believers, throw that away as well. No. Salvation has always been only determined by God's sovereign choice, not by human behavior. Next, salvation is according to God's purpose of election. God's purpose of election. This is also in verse 11. So Paul makes it clear that God's word has availed because salvation is always in according to God's purpose. Right? That's what he says. It was not because of anything that the twins, Jacob and Esau, would do or had done that determined God's choice of Jacob and not Esau. I mean, the verse categorically says that Jacob was chosen and not Esau, right? Jacob was chosen and not Esau. And then it says, so God's purpose of election might stand or might remain or might continue. Now, I want to do just a quick look at a sampling of other passages that emphasize the sovereignty of God and that he fulfills all that he purposes for those that he has chosen with nations as well as with people. So just rejoice in this if you're a child of God. Job 42.2 says, I know, Job speaking to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. A little bit of God's purpose be thwarted? No, 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 no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. God has a design for everything and everyone. We know it's not just things that he's talking about because he says, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God has a purpose for them. Isaiah 46, 10 says, that God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. All of it. Jumping to the New Testament, Ephesians 1.11 says, In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, we talked about that in Romans 8, Verse 29, we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's purpose, his will. Ephesians 3.11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he, he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's eternal purpose for us as believers 
is all realizing what Jesus has done for us. And then Second Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy 1 and verse 9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling or to, it's either to a holy calling or with a holy calling. I won't go into that distinction here. Not because of our works, same thing that Paul said in Romans 9. Not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Salvation is always determined by God's purpose of election. So in our text in Romans 9, Paul's point is that God chose Jacob and not Esau, chose the secondborn rather than the firstborn in order that his purpose for them as individuals as well as for the nations that would come from them would fulfill his purposes, God's purposes. So if this was true for them individually and and the nations that would come for them, surely it is true for us as well, individually and as a church family and as God's and part of God's universal church, right? All those who are in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. You see, as, as we go through this, your trust in yourself ought to be going way, way down. Your trust in God ought to be going up and up and up. Next, salvation is according to God's calling. So this is the last reason that Paul gives for denying that the word of God has failed in that salvation is always according to God's calling, which is different than his choice or his purpose of election. Again, it's in verse 11, and there it says that God's choosing of Jacob and not Esau was not because of works, but because of him who calls, right? Now, we talked about this in Romans 8 and verse 30. Those that God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And those that he predestined, he also called. And those that he called, he also justified. And those that he justified, he's also glorified. So right in the middle of that salvation chain was this idea of being called. And as I said in that verse, it applies to this verse as well. This is a reference to the effectual call of God, whereby he calls the guilty sinner to repentance for their sin and grants them faith in God's promise. Wow. God calls them to repentance and then calls them to faith in his son. So the clear implication is that God is the one who initiates and fulfills salvation in order that his purpose of election might stand. People may believe that, you know, they're working hard to be right with God. But the truth is, the only end to which their hard work will bring them is eternal destruction and being separated from the glory of God's might forever. But God does act according to his purpose of election and effectually calls people to repentance and to faith in the promise of the gospel. But we should take note in this passage that it is clearly implied, isn't it, that God doesn't call everyone? 
He doesn't effectually call everyone, only those that he has in fact chosen. Now that's the, the implication of verses 12 and 13, where it says the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The implication is that God didn't choose both or the nations that would come from them. And now we're going to deal more with that as we go on in Romans 9 and on through this entire long section. But we should clearly see here that God had a purpose for the one and not for the other. It wasn't the same purpose. He had a purpose for both, but it wasn't the same purpose. God chose the one and not the other, right? Is that, is that clear? Yes. I, grant, I grant you, you may not like that. You may struggle with that. Many people do. But it's the clear words that are telling us this. So let's think of this applicationally. A man once told a Bible teacher, I have a trouble with that verse. <laughs> that verse that says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. How could God ever say that he hated Esau? Well, the Bible teacher answered that, that he too had a trouble with that verse. But he wasn't bothered by how God could say that he hated Esau. He was bothered by the fact that God said that he loved Jacob. Now, if you read the Genesis story about Jacob, you, you can understand why the Bible teacher would say that. Jacob was a supplanter, a deceiver, a manipulator. And he did it not only with his parents and his brother, but his, his, his wives and his father-in-law. And, you know, he's, he just did it over and over and over again. And yet, this is the one that God says, Jacob, I loved well, Esau I hated. And, and we should also understand that the word hated doesn't necessarily imply what we would think, which is when we, I, I hate that person, we're thinking of a, a very emotional dislike. I mean, kind of just like we're burning, you know, when we think of them, we're just like, right? We growl. It's like, no, this probably has more the idea of, Jacob I loved and will bless as the child of promise. Esau I will not bless in the same way. So not the emotional hatred that we might want to associate with that word. But shouldn't we too, and I think most of us, if we're honest, would say that we have wondered how God could love us. Right? Right? I've heard it expressed many times from this platform, from men sharing regarding the the sacrifice of the Lord. Why would God do this for me? Me of all people. You know, Paul kind of expressed that himself, right? In the the sense of like, I was was the worst guy. I was one untimely born. I didn't even deserve the grace of God. Of course, no one deserves grace. It's undeserved. But he says, you know, I was a persecutor of the church. I was the one going around killing Christians and bringing them to trial and doing everything to, you know, wipe out the way, the followers of Jesus. And, and yet he chose me and he drew me to repentance and, and faith. And, you know, he rejoiced. And I think many of us think that way, too. All we have to do is look at our lives and there's no wondering about it. Why would, I mean, the wondering is like, why would he choose me? Even as believers, we can think that, right? It's like, I can't believe he'd choose me. I'm still messing up so bad. 
Hmm. But the answer to both troubles, whether, whether it is God hating Esau or loving Jacob or God hating other people but loving us, the answer is the same. Salvation is always according to God's sovereign choice and calling to fulfill his sovereign plans and purposes. Divine, sovereign election. Now, I want you to do something uh, or ask you to do something. Ask you a question, I guess. How do you react to what we've covered so far. I think it's so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but does, does, does some of what you know, God is saying in this passage cause you to think, yeah, that sounds like God's unfair. I don't want to admit that as a believer, but I kind of, I kind of respond that way. It's like, that doesn't sound right. I mean, they were just, they weren't even born. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. It's like, what kind of parent would I be if I said, I've got two sons coming, and I'm going to hate the one and love the other? That just sounds wrong. Ah, just relax, okay? That's kind of a normal way to think when you, when you confront what Paul is saying here. It's not right. It's wrong, in fact, to say, come to the conclusion that God might be unfair, but... It's normal to to have those kinds of feelings. Something in all of us reacts the same way. But as as we go on in Romans 9 and 10, we'll clarify some of the questions about God's apparent, apparent, apparent unfairness, you know. But in the meantime, as we close today, let me just encourage you to reverently accept the fact that God is greater than we are. That he knows more than we do. (laughs) That he knows what he's doing. And that everything he does is consistent not only with justice, but also with love. Mercy, as well as righteousness. Right? It's, It's not like he's one thing one time and another thing another time. He is all of those things all the time. So our response to this teaching that we're being confronted with should be that we see this passage that what it actually does it lays the axe to all self-sufficiency it lays the axe to any belief that just because I was born in the right family or because I do the right things that I'll be okay with God in the end I'll make it I'll make it you know I'll be on the high end of the curve uh, by the way, there is no curve. There maybe is in school that we attend here, but there is no curve with God in his judgment of people. It's not based on that, is it? It's not based on human merit or natural generation. It's, it's based on God's promise and God's purpose of election and, and God's calling, effectual calling, divine, sovereign election. So we should reverently give thanks and give praise to God because he sovereignly has chosen us to be right with him. All glory be to him. Lord, we are thankful for this passage, thankful for the clarity of it. We recognize, Lord, again, we do. We recognize that so many people struggle with these very things. 
help us, help us as we continue to go through this section of the book of Romans. Just have an open heart and mind to the truth. Knowing, knowing, Lord, that if we will do that, you will reveal what we need to know. How, how it can work together to the best of our ability to understand. And ultimately, it will result in us wanting to give you all the praise and glory. Because your gift of salvation to us is just that. A gift. A gracious gift that could never be earned. And so we rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.